You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And I'm delighted to be joined on the first podcast of uh, the new decade here in 2020 by Shannon Tiazzi, The Diplomats Editor-in-Chief. How are you doing, Shannon? Great, Ankit. It's always a pleasure to join you on the podcast. Yeah, and it's good to kick off uh, with you on the episode. And, you know, longtime listeners probably know that whenever we have Shannon on, we're going to talk about something related to China or as a as the case will be on this episode, uh, Taiwan. Uh, so 2020 is gearing up to be a year of elections. Yes, the United States is, of course, going to the polls in November to elect potentially a successor to Donald Trump. That's the election that basically the whole world is watching closer than anything else. But in Asia, we have a number of elections coming up this year. Uh, South Korea is going to the polls on April 15th for legislative elections. Singapore is probably going to the polls in May or possibly even earlier. Uh, Myanmar is supposed to have general elections later. Even Hong Kong, which was brought by a protest throughout 2019, is slated to have legislative council elections. But before all of that happens, uh, we're getting this year kicked off with Asia's one of Asia's most vibrant democracies uh, with a uh, very uh, uh, contentious uh, democratic debate, certainly uh, ahead of any election. Uh, and that is, of course, Taiwan. Uh, the Taiwanese people are going to the polls on January 11th, we're recording this on January 6th, just a few days before, uh, to elect another president, uh, potentially uh, re-electing the incumbent, President Tsai Ing-wen of the Democratic Progressive Party, or her opponent, her main opponent, uh, Kaohsiung Mayor Han Kuo-yu uh, with the Kuomintang. So, Shannon, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping that we can uh, spend this episode uh, talking through, uh, you know, what makes this presidential election so important for Taiwan. Uh, so do you want to just walk us through a little bit of, you know, what exactly has happened, uh, the, you know, the broad picture of the last four years in Taiwan and what the stakes are uh, with this election, uh, not only for cross-strait ties, um, certainly Taiwan's own domestic situation and economic situation, uh, but just broadly, uh, what do you see as the stakes in this election? Um, well, I think to fully understand what's going on, we have to go back a little bit further um, than five years. Uh, we we should go back, I think, to 2014, um, which is when the Sunflower Movement broke out in Taiwan. And that was, um, there were a number of factors at play, but one of the major driving forces behind that was the cross-strait question. Uh, essentially, the Mindjo government, which was in power in Taiwan at the time, had um, created this economic deal with China on uh, cross-strait trades and services that got a lot of backlash from the public in Taiwan. And it really sparked this broader conversation of what should the public and um, the legislature, what should their role be in the cross-strait dynamic? Because before then, it had basically been entirely in the hands of the executive uh, branch and the president. So what should their role be? Um, and really the more fundamental question of how close should Taiwan look to get with mainland China? And there's obviously a lot of ways to look at that issue. In the case of the Sunflower Movement, there was a sense that economically it was bad for Taiwan. Um, that was essentially kind of hollow out Taiwan's economy by allowing these Chinese businesses to flood in. But also once Taiwan became even more economically dependent on China, that that would have negative national security ramifications. So in the wake of that, um, you started seeing some really landslide victories for the DPP, which, as you noted, is um, Tsai Ing-wen's party. And it's traditionally called the pro-independence party um, because technically the party charter has never updated itself to, uh, from saying that it seeks an independent Taiwan. Um, but really, you haven't seen mainstream DPP politicians agitating for independence in quite some time. And certainly Tsai Ing-wen has not done that. So just to caveat the sort of pro-independence label. 
Uh, but regardless of that, there is a sense that the DPP is going to take a much more cautious attitude toward Taiwan's relationship with China. And um, the voters really showed that they preferred that um, compared to Ma Ying-jeou at KMT, their sort of warmer embrace of China. So Tsai Ing-wen was swept into power in a massive victory over her rival um, of the KMT. And they also, the DPP won legislative control, which is something that they had had never won, had before. So it sort of looked at the time that the Kuomintang was dead in the water, uh, that its approach on particularly cross-strait affairs, um, but also broader economic policy had, had effectively killed it off and that the party would not be able to recover. And then we saw the, uh, the local elections of, <laughs> of um, 2018. And that was a big surprise yeah. for a lot of people. Um, yeah, the, the KMT actually came out on top, and one of the shock victors was Hang Kuyu, who won in Kaohsiung, which had long been a DPP stronghold. Uh, so then the question was, okay, maybe the KMT is back, and they're a force to be reckoned with, and the DPP is now on the defensive. And since then, the pendulum has swung back. Um, Hang Kuyu went from a massive lead in the polls over Tai earlier this year to now a massive deficit, and he's down by you know 20 to 30 percentage points in polls, depending on what you're looking at and how recent polls are. Mm-hmm. So, so pretty much, uh, uh, so pretty much everybody, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom going to this election is that, as you said, Tsai Wen is very well positioned to win. Um, and so what are some of the factors that in the last year in 2019 uh, led to that dramatic reversal of fortunes for Han Kuo Yu? I mean, I remember, you know, a year ago, everybody was, you know, you were reading articles kind of in a uh, uh, you know, not at the diplomat, but many other places, you know, calling Han Kuo-yu kind of the Trump of Taiwan and, you know, everybody should be ready for a big upset. Uh, but of course, you know, one of the big factors people have been talking about is the reaction that Taiwan has had to what's been happening in Hong Kong for the last uh, six months or so. Uh, so is that is that really it? I mean, how much of this is, ex- is explained by the Hong Kong situation or are there other factors at work as well? I think Hong Kong has a lot to do with it. And if you looked at a chart of the opinion polling, you can see that Han's lead really really disappears um, right around the same time that the Hong Kong protests get going, um, right around early June. And then he comes back a little bit in July and then just kind of nosedives from there. So that's definitely part of it. It's not only that the Hong Kong protests really sort of reminded the Taiwanese public what's at stake in their relationship with China and what one country, two systems could look like for Taiwan in a very negative sense, um, but also the KMT and Han in, in particular really bungled their response. Um, initially, when Han was being asked about it, he denied that he had any idea what was happening in Hong Kong. He said he didn't know much about it, um, whereas Tsai and her government came out very much on the offensive, saying we support the Hong Kong protesters. You know, we reject one country, one country, two systems as a model for Taiwan. Um, you know, being very forward leaning in their response, and clearly that resonated with the Taiwanese public. But I think there's other factors at play, and one of them is that Hong Kuo-yu was was basically a blank slate. Um, he was essentially an unknown political figure when he rode this massive wave of populist support to victory in the Kaohsiung mayor election. And I think that expectations for him have come back down to earth a little bit now that people are actually seeing how he governs, um, which frankly, I think has been disappointing for a lot of people because he made a lot of fairly unrealistic promises about how he was going to completely turn around Kaohsiung's economy and sign all of these deals with mainland China and um, make Kaohsiung rich again. 
And he ha that hasn't really panned out. And part of that is because he's been focusing on the presidential campaign. Um, the residents of Kaohsiung are, many of them are very displeased with the way he's been governing. But also I think people are realizing that some of his rhetoric um, doesn't translate very well to action. So there's a combination of both those factors. People are now becoming more familiar with Han Kuo-yu. He's losing a little bit of that shine and that image that he had built for himself. And then you have the Hong Kong factor as well, which is pulling people toward Tsai mm -hmm. And of course, on a New Year's Day, uh, I think President Tsai delivered a very uh, you know clear-cut analysis of the situation in Hong Kong and its meaning for Taiwan. She said, Hong Kong people have showed us that one country, two systems is definitely not feasible. And she continued, under one country, two systems, the situation continues to deteriorate in Hong Kong. The credibility of one country, two systems has been sullied by the government's abuse of power. And of course, uh, you know, I think I think uh, that's really been uh, sort of my take too. that this Hong Kong thing is really, I think, blown back uh, in Taiwan. So one of the takeaways I think a lot of people, uh, including myself, had from the 2016 elections uh, and uh, Tsai Ing-wen's victory, which, as you correctly noted, really does date back to the um, the. Uh, you know, the political forces that were set into motion by the Sunflower Movement was the assertion of Taiwanese identity, the Taiwanization of Taiwanese politics uh, and the rise of the DPP. Um, how much are these questions of identity now, I mean, really being contested? Because obviously, you know, you've covered this a lot for us at The Diplomat. China has really taken off the gloves in uh, crunching Taiwan under the DPP's um, tenure, right? So everything from poaching diplomatic allies to making Taiwan's economic life as difficult as possible, uh, you know, the old strategy of using carrots and strict uh, sticks to maintain the uh, the cross-strait relationship. When the KMT is in power, more carrots, but the DPP, we see more sticks. Uh, so, you know, looking ahead, uh, you know, let's just assume that, you know, Tsai Ing-wen is going to win as the polls project. Uh, what do you think happens? I mean, if, if, you know, she does win with the kind of mandate that most people seem to be predicting, I mean, what does that mean for the, the cross-strait relationship and for uh, Beijing's approach towards Taipei? Um, I think, obviously, are, uh, the kind of the best case scenario, unfortunately, is that Beijing is going to continue along the same track that it has, um, you know, in terms of really restricting Taiwan's participation in any sort of international forum. Um, one thing that we might see is Beijing leaning harder to get Taiwan even not invited to the APEC summits, which Taiwan is actually a member of because that is based on economies and not um, statehood. So Hong Kong, for example, also sends its own representative. Uh, but there's been rumors in the past that Beijing would refuse to allow Taiwan to send a representative or lean on the whatever the host government is um, not to invite Taiwan. And as we could see something like that, you know, really upping the ante of trying to drive Taiwan out of any international fora where it's represented. Um, definitely more pressure on Taiwan's diplomatic allies and trying to induce them to, to change. Um, I think a worst case scenario would be that Taiwan's in such a landslide, and it seems directly related to the cross-strait question that China's leadership really sort of gives up hope that um, Taiwan can ever be peacefully reunified. And obviously the question of will Taiwan be invaded um, by the mainland is, is a perennial issue of concern for analysts. I, I don't think that's very likely. Um, Xi Jinping has more than enough on his plate without adding an invasion of Taiwan to the mix. Um, what we could see, however, and this is something that happened during um, the previous DPP president, Chen Sui-bian, he came to office hoping for um, at least a, a semi-friendly relationship with Beijing. He was willing to work with them. He got the cold shoulder. Um, when he was re-elected, he sort of set, threw in the towel and said, okay, I played nice with China and they haven't 
given me anything in return. Um, so then he really upped the ante. Um, you started hearing talk about referendums, about whether Taiwan should be an independent country, which is a huge red line uh, for Beijing. I don't think we will see that with Tsai. She has been incredibly pragmatic um, and embraced, you know, the status quo is essentially her cross-rate policy. I want to keep the status quo. Um, but the temptation will be there, you know, if this more muscular policy and, as you said, very frank uh, outlining of what she views as the threat from China seems to win her a lot of public supports and has political benefits, there's going to be a huge temptation to push the envelope even further. Of course, the X factor in all of this is the United States in many ways. Uh, I think, uh, you know, needless to say, the first few days of 2020 have already shown us that uh, probably more so, uh, you know, going to the fourth year of the Trump presidency, President Trump's instincts are really sort of, there are no real, uh, you know, there are no guardrails anymore. Uh, the president's instincts are finding their way into policy. And uh, Trump himself has had an interesting, you know, back and forth on Taiwan, uh, everything from treating Taiwan as a bargaining chip and trade talks potentially to uh, sort of, you know, being the president that's willing to uh, upend Taiwanese uh, U.S.-Taiwan relations in, in big ways. Uh, he certainly, uh, you know, has assented to major uh, defense deals uh, last year. Uh, 2019 marked the 40th year, of course, of the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, but, you know, if, if Tsai Ing-wen does win, and this is, you know, sort of asking you to do the impossible and predict the unpredictable, um, but how do you uh, how do you expect? I mean, uh, you know, what could the United States potentially do that could uh, really rock this boat? I mean, uh, regardless of, of what happens, the U.S. is going to have to react to the election result in Taiwan. Um, and, you know, I just I just have some dark thoughts about uh, things that the United States could do potentially, especially, you know, given the current environment uh, in, uh, in U.S.-China trade talks and depending on, you know, where things go, even with uh, North Korea, potentially uh, Taiwan does, again, I think, take on uh, additional importance uh, potentially playing that role again of a bargaining chip between the U.S. and China? Yeah, I think that's that's been a huge concern, especially among the Taiwanese, um, is that Trump essentially sees Taiwan as something he can use as leverage to get other things that he wants from China. And that is exactly what Taiwan does not want to be. <laughs> because then essentially what you're signaling is that there is a price. And if China is willing to pay that price, you know, in terms of trade concessions, um, or other things, you know, South China Sea, North Korea come to mind, um, then that Trump would abandon Taiwan. Um, I think there are enough figures in his administration who have been pro-Taiwan that we haven't seen that concern come to fruition. As you noted, we've seen some very muscular defense sales, um, including, you know, approving the sale of F-16s to Taiwan, which for a long time has been more or less unthinkable. Um, but now you've also seen a lot of turnover, um, Randy Shriver being one notable exception. Uh, he was very pro-Taiwan, very friendly toward Taiwan, and now he's no longer at the Department of Defense. And as you said, Trump's administration is inherently unpredictable, and it seems like he is taking more assertive control and less willing to be guided by what his advisors are saying. So we definitely can't rule out that he's going to do something um, or say something, you know, put Taiwan on the table as the U.S. and China enter their phase two trade talks, which is supposed to happen at some point this year. Um, but if Tsai Ing-wen wins election, you're really seeing continuity. Um, and I wouldn't expect a drastic change in U.S. policy toward Taiwan. Uh, of course, we'll have to wait and see what happens in the U.S. election at the end of the year. Uh, if we get a new administration here, we might see a shift in U.S. policy toward Taiwan as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one other issue uh, that uh, so in our um, not the most recent issue, but in the uh, in the December 2019 issue of the Diplomats magazine, uh, we had a cover article by uh, Russell Shaw of the Global Taiwan Institute looking at um, the mainland's uh, efforts to uh, interfere in uh, Taiwanese democracy, uh, including efforts by the Communist Party's uh, sort of uh, United Front Work Department uh, to, uh, you know, foster um, pro KMT sentiment and uh, really kind of work to hurt the DPP in the elections. Of course, you know, as the polls suggest, many of those interference efforts hasn't, haven't really been successful. Um, but certainly, I think, you know, Russell made a very, I thought, compelling case that these efforts have intensified under under the last uh, four years of, uh, of DPP leadership under Tsai Ing-wen. Is this, is this something that you see, uh, you know, maybe China sort of rethinking or perhaps, you know, impl- uh, employing different tactics going forward to better influence Taiwanese democracy. I mean, obviously, I think Taiwan has has shown that its institutions are are qu- are quite robust. Uh, and of course, you know, there have been uh, legal measures taken in Taiwan to uh, prevent uh, the effectiveness of some of these measures, including the anti-infiltration infiltration law. Uh, but how do you uh, how do you make sense of uh, the uh, efforts by the mainland to interfere in Taiwanese democracy? I think this is an evolution of uh, long-standing attempts by China to win over various stakeholders within Taiwan, um, whether that means business people, local government officials, um, as Russell outlined in his article, a lot of times this is done through temples, um, educational exchanges, you know, various things like that. And now they've really moved it onto a much broader scale um, by going online and using the tools of social media to reach a wider audience. Um, You know, there's tons of stories you can find about content farms that are essentially churning out fake news that is then disseminated on Taiwanese websites or even sometimes picked up by news outlets um, because Taiwan has sort of a wild, wild west media atmosphere that competition is so tense there's a, a a lot of pressure to pick up flashy stories without vetting them properly and just run with them and and get the clicks and get the attention um so i i think ta- china is always fine-tuning and tinkering with uh its united front you know influence operations in taiwan and really around the world um so definitely they're going to see how this election goes and then reevaluate what their tactics have been. I think a big part of this election is that it's been very openly talked about, these influence operations. And that's obviously kind of having a backlash effect um, that is probably winning Taiwan some support. So China might take a step back, rethink, maybe try and find more covert ways of accomplishing the same thing. Um, and maybe try more of extending the carrots to these local level leaders and uh, business people and exchanges to win support there. Um, But we're just going to have to wait and see what the results are and how China interprets them, which those two things might not be uh, as uh, intuitively related as we might think. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, with just a few days away, we'll uh, we'll have the results. But uh, Shannon, you know, thanks a lot for uh, joining me today to break down, uh, you know, this uh, this very important election for Taiwan. It's, it, it's certainly a great discussion to kick off uh, the year and the decade. Yeah, this is uh, it's going to be a interesting way to start off January with a major election in Taiwan that'll have huge ramifications for the cross-strait relationship and, you know, ultimately for the U.S.-China-Taiwan triangle, which is 
always of major interest. That's right. And uh, and for listeners, actually, uh, you know, I will I will take this opportunity to plug the recent uh, issue of the Diplomats magazine uh, for January. As has been tradition in recent years, uh, we've asked many of our contributors, uh, in- including Shannon and myself, to uh, chime in on some of the uh, developments to watch and expect in the in the year ahead. Uh, so if you're uh, curious on, you know, what you should be keeping your eye on around the Asia-Pacific, uh, definitely check that out. Uh, that's, uh, you know, really, I think, a valuable resource. So we've had some really good people uh, putting out some great analysis in there. Uh, so, yeah, once again, Shannon, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Anke. It's always a pleasure. Great. And uh, for our listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Certainly, I hope you'll keep the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics podcast on your podcast role for uh, 2020 and beyond. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers. We really appreciate that. And finally, before we close, just a quick note from the sponsor of this episode. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.